You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. So you're currently the head golf professional at the Black Oak Golf Club in Flanders, New Jersey. But looking at some of your credentials here, starting with, we'll start with awards. You have received from the New Jersey section of the PGA, I won't give the years, Teacher of the Year. Uh, You've won the Horton Smith Award twice, actually three times because you won the National Horton Smith Award. You won the uh, Professional of the Year Award and the Herb Graffis Award, accepted as section president. You have more than 20 years as, let's see, the Assistant PGA Board of Directors. You've been there. You were actually the you were on the board. You were also president for a while, correct? Yes. Okay. And you were also president of the New Jersey Golf Foundation and a board member. You have taught a lot of courses. I'm not even going to read through all of them. There are many. I mean, at heart, you're a teacher, correct? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah you know, teaching the game and also the rules of the game. So that would yeah. be yeah, something... Didn't expect to go that route, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. So let's get to the good stuff here. <laughs> You were appointed to the PGA, and, and we'll because I need clarification on the difference between PGA rules and USGA rules, but we'll get to that. So you were first appointed to the PGA Rules Committee in 1996. I think I was in high school at the time. You served for six years as vice chairman of that committee. You were a chairman of the committee for three years, and now you are currently honorary chairman. Honorary chair, they, yeah. They ran That's out a nice of nice way that they kick you out. Yeah, they ran out of titles for you. I'm not out so, of the committee. I'm just out of the out of the chairmanship role, which is probably a good thing, right? Yeah, it's, it's not bad. <laughs> okay, so in terms of your officiating, and this is where the this is the longest part of the list here. You have officiated at 18 PGA championships. You were the rules chairman at Beth Page in Kiowa. You uh, were at four senior PGA championships, where you were chairman at Trump DC. Four PGA KPMG championships. You were the rules uh, chairman at each one. Five Ryder Cups. You were the chief referee at Whistling Straits. Three PGA Cup matches. Chief referee at Barton Creek. PGA Women's Cup matches. Also chief referee Barton Creek. PGA Grand Slam of Golf. PGA Junior Ryder Cup. More than 75 PGA of America member championships as PGA Rules Committee member. Over 275 PGA member tournaments in the winter series and winter championships. Is that what you were doing down in Florida? Yeah, every year we do, uh, I do six uh, winter series events in December and another six or seven in January, February. Okay. So you really were busy, too busy to, to do the podcast then, right? They get busy. Yeah. There were, it's a small staff down there. We, we, we move pretty fast. Okay. You've done four open championships at Truon Royal Berkshire, Carnoustie and Royal Port Rush, two players championships on the PGA tour BMW European Tour Championship, U.S. Women's Open, USGA Women's Open, USGA Senior Open, Senior Amateur, Junior Amateur, and 13 Masters Tournaments. Does that include the one 
this year where you had to run for your life to avoid being crushed by a tree? No, that uh, most likely would be my final. It was a nice way to go out. So it'd be four, my 14th and final, most likely. But yeah, that was uh, quite a way to end the visit with Augusta. Can you tell us about that experience? <laughs> well, it was just, I was stationed, you know, we sit, we have a hole, a different hole usually every day. And it was a little confusing with the weather and not finishing. So you go to a, whatever your next day's assignment's going to be. But I was currently on 16 and you sit Basically, nothing happens on 16. You just watch, you know, maybe a couple balls collide on the green, but mostly just sit under near the TV tower. And right directly behind me is 17T, you know, within four or five steps, really. And as I was actually up walking around while a group was on uh, 16, was Larry Mize's group. He, he was playing his final Augusta, final Masters. And all of a sudden, you just heard this cracking. And you look up and here are these 250-foot southern pines you know, starting to come down. Fortunately, they fell at a, an angle somewhat down the hole, but they did fall across where approximately 25, 30 patrons were sitting. And so for a few scary seconds, you thought you were going to see some people injured. And as they say, by the grace of God, no injuries. We suspended play for the day right there and then. And uh, by the next day, you never even knew the trees were there. And that's how Augusta does things. Now, did you literally have to run to avoid being hit by the tree? The first momentum was I was actually running, not running, but moving towards the patrons. You, you, you're, you're initial. I'm not, I don't experience these things at all in life. But so my initial was like, oh my gosh, you got to help these people out of here. And then you look up and see these things coming down. So you're going to end up in the middle of them. So I stopped and I got on my radio to call. Before they even hit the ground, I had called medical services and then called Jim Heiler, who runs the Masters tournament, to tell him what was happening. Wow. And then we have a lot of police presence at Augusta. And so very quickly, there are a lot of professionals on the scene. And we were within 20, 30 seconds able to determine that there were no injuries. And so I relayed that information. And then they blew the horns to stop for the day. Okay. Now, why do you say that's going to be your last... Masters. It's I'm fortunate to have had as many. We as, again with my committee, which I'm sure you and I will discuss, you know, going further. We have a certain amount of invitations from a PGA of America Rules of Golf Committee, and so our chairman, as you serve as a chairman and vice chairman, that's when you're going. So as I moved up through the chair with three chair uh, vice chair roles and then a chairman role, and then a couple of other years before I was asked to go, we had more spots at the point. So it's basically time for the next crew of future chair persons, uh, chairman and vice chairs to okay. get their shot at it. Okay. I had a lot of opportunity, which is Okay. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I, I like to start these uh, interviews at the very beginning and talk about your backstory. You know, your early years, where you came from, where you went to school, siblings, jobs, how you got started in golfing business. Yeah, pretty serendipitously. Uh, you know, I played I started playing pretty much, you know, I had a half brother and, uh, but pretty much grew up as an only child. My dad played golf. I like to say that, you know, back in the day in the Catholic religion, you know, when you were born about the most important thing ever was to get baptized right away or else there could be consequences. And my godfather was actually away playing a golf tournament, you know, so my baptism had to be postponed. So my, so you'd say, well, he must've been destined to play for that reason. But, you know, just played, uh, started when I was about 10, a lot of vacations with my dad, mom and dad, you know, to golf destinations, you know, played through high school, didn't play in college. I went to Michigan State to start, found out quickly I was not competitive at the Big Ten collegiate golf level. I didn't really expect to be. Got out of college, uh, did not get into golf right away. 
was into the wines and spirits import business, got kind of burned out on that and started working at a golf course and uh, said, hey, this is this is what I want to do. Now, are you from Michigan originally? No, no. I went to Michigan. <laughs> so how, how smart I was uh, or had bad uh, high school advisors. Uh, I went there because it was a, a veterinary college. I wanted to be a veterinarian. Oh, cool. Uh, as quickly as I found out, my golf uh, skills were not up to par. Neither were my intellectual <laughs> skills uh, to be a doctor of veterinary medicine. So that all changed direction quickly. But no, I'm born and bred, born and raised in New Jersey, born in East Orange and uh, grew up in East Hanover. Okay. So do you have dogs now? Are you still a pet lover? Of all things growing up, we had dogs. We raised collies and then I, and, and we really did not like cats. But through, again, the way life works, I have uh, two cats we have two cats that uh, basically were uh, feral cats that we kind of caught and uh, and brought inside, and they're, one's watching me right now. But uh, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, I never thought I'd go that way either. They're they're always watching. They're always yeah. watching. <laughs> okay, okay. So your dad was your biggest influence in terms of golf. The beginning. Yeah, of he the- loved the game. He was a middle manager for New Jersey Bell Telephone. Uh, you know, he ran. Uh, talk about things that people don't remember. He was he ran sales for basically Yellow Pages. So if anybody who can listen to this remembers phone books, you had to be in the Yellow Pages. So that's where he was. And but every uh, waking moment outside of work, he'd find a way onto the golf course. Okay, so you go to Michigan State. You discovered that you aren't competitive enough to succeed on the golf team or be a vet. <laughs> yeah, so you, far, so good, right? Oh, for wine and spirit business. I hope you haven't given up on that interest. No, no, I'm a plus <laughs> handicap when it comes to okay. my wine ventures. Okay, and then you end up at a golf club somewhere. Where that, where was that? It actually started with the Morris County Parks courses, uh, oh, Pinchbrook, okay. Flanders, oh, right, okay, right, okay, yeah, Sunset Valley. Because I, I played, that's where I played. I played growing up, you know, again, my mom would just take myself, my next door neighbor up to Flanders when it was, it's now 36 holes. Back then it was three nines, uh, red, white, and blue. And I think a a kid, a Mars County kid could play for a buck and all day. And so she just take, and there was nobody there. My neighbor is a year or two older than me. We'd go up and just go around the place all day long, all summer long, five days a week. Okay. Cool. So a dollar and another two dollars that got you a hot dog and a Coke and yeah. It's a little bit pricier these days. I've I've yeah. I actually walked off Flanders more than I've played it because of the slow play. You know, when you're waiting ten minutes in every shot, it's just it's not fun. I used to play Sunset Valley. This is you know further along my amateur career and and go up as a single, especially in college. And that was the case. Uh the the sixteenth hole came up right to the parking lot. And usually by then we were almost five hours in. So most of my rounds there were 16 whole rounds. So yeah. I understand. Okay. So then did you work at Flanders? I worked at all of them a little bit at a time, a lot of time at Pinchbrook. My first okay. golf professional, Cindy Cooper, who now is, works a long time for the USGA. So okay. uh, that was that dude. And I went over there not planning to, to do it. My next, next door neighbor was a starter. And he said, Hey, I know you're, you're not doing anything right now. And, uh, you know, so I, I started as a guy outside and then eventually, you know, just quickly moved into the pro shop and figured out that, uh, you know, I, and I could play a little bit. So, uh, okay. yeah, let's go. When did you get your PGA card? 1994 class A. Yeah. Okay. Were you and at so Flanders I, at the time? By then I was up at Bowling Green, up at Bowling Green in Jefferson. Okay. Yeah. How many clubs have you worked at? Uh, really just from the, County courses to Bowling Green and then up to the Crystal Springs Resort courses. So those are the New Jersey and then now obviously Black Oak for the last uh, 11 years. 
Okay. Let, let's talk a little bit uh, about your uh, golf teaching. And I, I have actually taken a lesson from you, and I'm happy to report that my uh, handicap has gone from 16 to 18. So yeah. you haven't been into too much damage. <laughs> Never uh, said well, I was it, good. Uh, it was a good lesson. It was a good lesson. Then the lessons just don't seem to work on me. Um, I, I could have Ben Hogan give me a lesson, and it, and it wouldn't help, especially because he's been dead for a while. Uh, at any rate, so how many lessons do you think you've given over the course of your career? I don't know. I know, you know, I was, when I went to work with Dave Glenn's, it was really at the outset, uh, onset of when kind of golf schools, golf academies were starting to really catch fire in that early golf boom, you know, 19, late 90s into 2000s when, you know, the Jim McLean's of the world, Jimmy Ballard schools, Ballard Colbert's. So golf schools became, you know, a way that a lot of people came into the game. So my peaks, I was probably teaching 70 to 80 golf schools a year, a wow. season, and approximately 1,500 private lessons. It was busy. You know, so I did that for almost 17 years. Wow. Okay. So you've given a few. So do you have a teaching philosophy? I, I know that to get your PGA card, you have to kind of express what that is, right? I mean, that's a, a tough thing to get, by the way. Um, yeah. I mean, there's quizzing. There's some testing on teaching. It's certainly not Unfortunately for the PGA of America, it's not a, an area of, of emphasis as much as it should be. No, and again, I give David a lot of credit for this, is that we, we really just try to view golf as you know athletically as possible. And, and I think you see that now with the current generation in, in terms of fitness. and But just treating it not like a bunch of connected parts, but you know an athletic movement, just like you naturally do when you throw a ball or you know, try to swing a, a bat into a ball. And, you know, there's obviously some specifics you have to you know, really agree on in terms of, you know, how to hold the club, aim the club. What does it do? How does it work? But then, you know, you really try to get people, I try to get people to be, you know, a athletic and, and hopefully uh, that's really helpful with, for those who come from some form of athletic background, as minimal as it might be. The harder, you know, when I first started teaching, I used to teach a lot of folks who, you know, for instance, a wife whose husband just retired and now she wants to learn to play. And mm -hmm. you ask what's your athletic background and, and there wasn't any. So so those are more difficult. But if you get somebody who who's played some sports, there's always a connection that can be made. Yeah. And I know that every swing and every person is different, but you must see common problems that most golf, average golfers that play once every other week or, you know, occasionally that plague them. My history has been such that I feel like the hardest thing to do in golf, as silly as it sounds, is really to aim correctly. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, you know, players tend to think that the body should be aimed to the target when actually it's the club face, if you think about it, and the body stands parallel to that. But a lot of players, particularly if you're a right-hander, um, they tend to aim well to the right of their target. And then over time, I mean, you, you think about that. If you actually hit it where you, you've aimed, you've hit a poor shot. And so if you don't correct the aiming, you now correct, you now start moving the swing a different way and you start swinging, you know, above the plane, outside in, whatever you want to talk about it, over the top, all any kind of phrases that we can use. But a lot of that is it can be traced back to, you know, starting well and getting well aligned and then you know the sense of how to swing the golf club head you know on the target line yeah and that and then for guys particularly uh, a lot of tendency to try to power their swings through the upper body 
rather than, you know, try to show you, I'm using your arms to me. It was just tension. Those are the most common things. Yeah. How much of an impact, for better or worse, do you think that online golf, and I'm addicted to it, um, <laughs> has helped or hurt the, the game or helped the average golfer? Well, way back in the early teaching days, I would buy every book that I could get my hands on. Then I bought every audio tape and cassette tape, and then it turned into CDs. And this was all, you know, the thing about golfers is they're just dying for information. Right. And from the beginning, they bought everything put out. That's why a lot of people made a lot of good money on, on, on golf instruction. And, and obviously, it's transitioned now into the YouTube, the video ages. And is it a benefit? Well, I think it's a benefit if you know who you are and what you're looking for. And it's a detriment if you just go on and just listen to somebody pitch a concept at you that might not fit you because you might not move that way. You're not built that way. You're, there's a lot of That's one of the first things I do in figuring out a, a plan of attack for a student is, well, let's see how this person moves. What's intuitive to them? And then we'll try to you know cultivate a movement based on what they're capable of doing. But that's certainly not the case if you're going online and just you know, kind of filtering information back in. It may not apply and do more harm than good, honestly. Yeah. Do you think that the online instruction has taken away business from in-person pros teaching? No, I mean, possibly the opposite, because when they do go through this online process and they get worse, uh, they had only one place to turn. So I think it's like I had a, a member of the Dr. Bissell came in the other day. He's a dentist. And I said, Doc, what's your favorite food as a dentist? He says, bagels. I goes, I, I got patients breaking more teeth on bagels than any other food. <laughs> and so, you know, it's the same thing with online. It's if it makes you worse, uh, you know, I'm the next step. Do you watch it at all? Do you watch any of the online instruction? Yeah, I watch it. And yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out. And then there's a lot of, you know, as someone who has their own opinion about it, and there's a lot of stuff that I, I don't think is very valuable. Yeah. There's a putting system called Aimpoint. Are you familiar with the Aimpoint putting? Oh, yeah. Do you have an opinion on that or you don't teach it, do you? I don't. And and so it, from that side of it, I find it got to be a little cautious. I don't have the enough information exactly on how it works other than what I've observed and been told. I just think, I think something like putting, it's really hard to take that and turn it into, you know, a physical action, you know, whatever any points using your feet to feel. I, I mean, I think we feel that intuitively. I think putting is, it comes more from a sense of your eyes how you perceive the break of the land, you know, that type of thing. And the biggest complaint with that point is it's really slow. That's you true. know, when we get on that, you know, talk about it, and you see players who do it from both directions now. And then I see a lot of players, you know, working in a lot of college events that just seem to be doing it because everybody else is doing it. I'm not sure they're getting any information from it. Yeah. So from that perspective, I'm not a fan. Again, any instruction, if it works for you and you feel it made you better, then it's good for you. But across the board, I've got questions. Yeah. What percentage of the lessons that you give are short game, chipping and putting? Do people care about that? Or? Well, fortunately, yeah, unfortunately, that's a little bit of a reputation I have. I, I just love that side of the game. I love the challenge of it because every chip shot, every pitch shot, lob shot, everyone is different. You got you to gotta have a, a real process for figuring out how to hit a good shot in those situations. So I, I really like that challenge my whole career. And so I, you know, it's always been a, more of a strength in my game than anything else. So I do end up a good number of short game and putting lessons. It's really, uh, I enjoy that a lot. Okay. My perception is that most people, you know, spend a lot of time whacking balls at, at the range. Most of the time they're driver only and don't spend any time on their short right. game. 
Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I and you you get the love of it. I've got a, a good story about that with uh, years now I've, I've been friends with and taught a gentleman named Bill Pennington, a, t- a writer for the New York Times. Uh, oh, sure. Sports writer. And I used to give, you know, he lived up by Crystal Springs in Warwick. That's how we got together. And I used to just listen, Bill, you got to hit these little chip shots to learn this drill. And what I, he told me years later was he used to do his practicing in the city at Chelsea Piers where it costs, you know, like 50 cents a ball. Yeah. And he says, I'm not going to waste my time chipping, but I'm going to hit some drivers. And, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of the philosophy most people have is if I got a short period of time, let me go bang some drivers where in reality to improve, they'd be a lot better served if they just did some chipping and budding with that half hour they had. But I get it. It's a lot more fun yeah. to hit drivers. Yeah. Well, listen, whenever I start to feel badly about my swing, I go out to the, the Flanders driving range and, uh, and watch other people hit balls. Totally agree. Makes you feel better. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so bad afterwards. There's always, there's always somebody worse than you are. <laughs> so let's get into the uh, officiating part here. First of all, you need to clear up for me because I was I didn't understand the difference between a USGA rules official and a PGA rules official. So maybe we could start there. Well, let's start by defining the association. So basically, in the world of, of the rules, uh, the United States Golf Association and the Royal and Action of RNA essentially own the rules. They write them, they publish them, and the rest of the golf bodies, we all play by them. So, and of course, within that, you know, they conduct their own competitions, you know, United States Open and the Open Championship, just to name, you know, a minor bit of what they do. Um, And so, so they'll have their own people who officiate their events. When you get to the professional sides, the PGA of America, which is what I am as a as a club professional. You know, we're we're basically the the stewards of the game for clubs and facilities along the. And we also have, as PGA members, we have a series of tournaments. We own the PGA Championship. We own the Ryder Cup, the PGA of America. And so, the committee I serve on about thirty four members, PGA members who are rules experts. Uh, and so that's the committee that is the PGA of America. Then you go into the tours. You got the PGA Tour, LPGA Tour. Obviously, you know, the players are their players and they, they have their own full-time rule staffs. So they you have full-time guys who work for the tour, guys and girls, and same thing with the LPGA Tour. So that's kind of the breakdown of the golf. But yeah, a lot of the USGA, PGA, PGA Tour conversations is always a very confusing one to get under your, my mother never figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, is there competition among the different, you know, rules? No, not at all. In fact, there's, there's a lot of times where, you know, members of, uh, for instance, over in, uh, more so over across, across the pond, as it were, the PGA of Great Britain and Ireland has been a, a constant feeding place for the DP World Tour. So, so a lot of my friends on the what was formerly known as European Tour, now the DP World Tour, they came from the club professional side. Not too much of that over here, although we have currently have two of our committee men working for the tour champions. And we've had quite a number through the years of uh, they jump over and go to work for the tour champions. It's just a different kind of job. Okay. When the USGA and or the RNA make new rules, do they consult with rules officials? Because you guys are on the ground. I mean, you guys are see the rules in action or not being adhered to, right? So in, in a nutshell, the USGA RNA have rules of golf specific committees, as you might imagine. And then on those committees, on that committee, there are representatives from, we have one 
PGA of America representative. There are there is PGA Tour, LPGA Tour. So they have representatives who sit on the committees. When it comes actual time to vote, I'm not sure they have a, a, a vote that counts, but they have there's a lot of they have a lot of say in terms of you know just where they think a given rule or a change of a rule might go. So yeah, there's a lot of good dialogue between the governing bodies and the tours and the PGA of America. Okay. How did you get into this whole officiating game? Did you um, apply? Are you invited? I mean, what's how does it work? Early on, my very first, the structure of the PGA was different. I went to my first business school and I had really no concept of, of the, I got the rule book as part of the kit that I had to learn. And uh, I was really concerned that I, 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 I didn't have a lot of rules experience through situations playing as an amateur. I, I can't even remember many. You know, my dad was always just keep hitting the ball wherever you find it. So, you know, you didn't, you weren't trying to get drops or anything like that. So then I had an instructor who's turned out to be a, a real mentor in the rules uh, named Larry Startzel, who's a past chairman of the committee. And uh, he was the instructor in my first class and he really made it make sense. And I, con- I continued to follow uh, classes that he taught. And then I just started helping the section level locally. And then back in 96, 97, the PGA of America, our national club professional t- championship, we expanded the qualifiers and we needed some more officials. And that's when I applied uh, to be on the committee and unfortunately got 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 in. So and been there ever since. <laughs> so it is an application process. You you have to raise for your hand. Say- oh yeah, for us it is for sure. And you, okay. and there's qualifications. You have there's there's you were you were talking about the education classes you saw me teach. Well, those are those are basically the classes that we, the PGA and the USGA, we co-teach those. And there's a test, and it's a pretty hard one. And one of the you know monitors we use or qualifiers we use is, is somebody's score on the test. So for our level, PGA of America, to be on our committee and stay in our committee, you have to consistently score 90 or above out of the 100 to stay on our rules committee. How frequently do you have to take We have to basically, at any you have to re-up any time between what we call a rules cycle. So you know the last rules change was... 2023 before that was 2019 so you had to get a what we call a good score between 19 and 23 and now everybody after 2023 needs a good score again in the next two to four years okay i've read that very few people score 100 on that test but you are one of those people because i've had a few good ones that speaks to your uh, knowledge i haven't haven't done it in the new since the nine 2019 changes i've got I think two ninety eights, but yeah, I, I can't quite crack it on you're the slipping, new. You're slipping, Brian. I'm going to work on it. Getting older. Now, is there an average tenure for rules official or a mandatory retirement age? Or no, you know, certainly none for our committee. You know, we, I think you know what you want to do is is there. You just you don't want to stay too long. You don't want to, you don't want to stay until because getting that test score gets harder as you get old. Everything and so. Our guys tend to cycle out when they see it like, you know what, I've been here a long time, but, yeah. you know, but we don't, we don't have any kind of mandatory age or anything. Yeah. Are you paid for these gigs? No. Uh, they don't no. cover transportation? No, I cover, I'm not paid for, you know, the actual work, certainly paid for, you know, my transportation, lodging, food for the event. Those are all covered. So, okay. but, I, but in terms of being away from work, uh, anything else? No. We're all, we're a volunteer, in PGA of America, we're strictly a volunteer association. Okay. Now, how many women officials are there, rules officials? For us? 
Currently, yep. we've got one, two, three. One of them is my better half. Who's, uh, <laughs> um, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. She got it. Oh. I, yeah. So we're the nerdiest golf couple in the world. Yep. She's the assistant professional at Maplewood Country Club and uh, is on the rules committee. And then we have um, currently two other women on the rules committee. So three out of the 34 are women on the okay. PGA not, side. Not a big number. Is that, are you trying to increase that or? Trying to increase all rules knowledge for PGA members, actually, but it's yeah. pr- it's probably pretty relative to the number of men versus women in terms of PGA members. Yeah, we we, we you know out of twenty six twenty seven thousand members, if you know we ten percent are women, that would be a lot. Yeah. So you and your wife sit around with a fine glass of wine because of your background in spirits and talk about golf rules. Is that? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's more true than I'd like to admit. Yeah, especially you know when we're down and working. We the only time we really work together rules wise is our winters. Um, so that you know each and every day that gives you the opportunity to have you know something happen. You talk about it. we've got a great little staff on our rules team down there. So that or and when we're both preparing because she also teaches the rules of golf class. And so when we're preparing to teach, which is a, it's pretty arduous thing to do, even if you've done it a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of time where we're talking about you know, how things work in the rules of golf. Yeah. Well, at least you're talking. Um, <laughs> yes. How are rules officials selected for specific events? Because some are probably more fun to officiate than others, right? I mean, well, certainly like, again, using our association, you know, everybody would like to work the PGA championship because it's, you know, it's uh, one of the, you know, four majors. And so for us, it's a matter of, you know, you've got to put your time in, you know, things that we also run like the, you know, we have the PGA, you know, junior championship, junior mm-hmm. boys, junior girls. We've got eight or nine other events that we run every year. And so as a member of the committee, you're you're expected to work those events. Don't jump onto the committee and write down, hey, I want to work the championship in the Ryder Cup. Um, so because there's definitely a level of expertise and, you know, kind of time in to earn that. Which is your favorite event to officiate at? If you're going across the board, and I hate to do this to my own associations, but my four open championships were just fantastic. I could work the British, as we called it, the British Open. I could work that anytime they asked me. It was it's just a fun environment on the oldest golf courses in the world. It just has a feel about it. It's just fantastic. Let me not downside Augusta. That's yeah. not fair because Augusta just doesn't count because it's so over and above what every other championship can possibly do. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Do you think European golf fans are more sophisticated or more, I don't know, better patrons than Americans that show up at events? Yeah, probably. You know, I, I think, well, first, when you get... Excluding the Waste Management Open. <laughs> when you get into Europe, golf is still relatively, you know, low on the totem pole. You know, soccer is everything, as we oh, know. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of other places, you know, you, you know, skiing, cricket, cycling, you know, when, when you get off the United Kingdom and get into the rest of Europe, it's not, we, I experienced that at the Ryder Cup in France, that the folks out there, they, they weren't real versed in the game. And even, especially the marshals were, you know, you really had to tell them what to do. Um, I think the folks in the UK are, are pretty sharp, you know, yeah. I think they're pretty old school. But in the States, you know, we're just a buy a ticket and drink beer and say whatever you want. And um, yeah, exactly. it makes me very concerned. The Ryder Cup at Beth Page will be a unique experience. And I, I hope it's a good one. Yeah. Do you have a favorite course in the UK? 
that you either played at or officially? I, I just like I like the history of Carnoustie because I am a Ben Hogan guy, and the okay. fact that you know I got to work there, and you know his one trip there in nineteen fifty three was his his lone victory, and uh, it's a pretty it's a really cool place. So yeah, so far. I'd Did you get to see it. Ben Hogan play? Oh no, I wish no, no. But I watched every bit of video footage I could get my hands on. Yeah, because you're what ninety three now, so you could have seen him. Right? <laughs> yeah, I could have. <laughs> At the average event, and it probably varies. I mean, how many rules officials are there, and wh- how are they positioned throughout the course? It, you um, can do it any number of ways. So, for instance, like Augusta and RPGA Championship, you're going to have a mix of people who are stationed on holes. And then a, another mix of people who we call rovers, who are generally, their job generally is has to do with pace of play. Some events, you know, so let's just take the PGA Tour. They're going to have eight to 10 guys out there, and they're just all in carts in covering areas. So it depends on, you know, over at uh, the Open Championship, you're going to have a walking referee with every group, uh, which, was, again, was part of the fun of, of the Open Championship that yeah. you actually just walked 18 holes with your group every day. So it can vary depending on how, how the association wants to set it up. The players kibitz with you. Uh, I mean, they must, some of you must recognize you and know you having, you know, cause you're there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, good about the Rory, Rory's very good about that. I've known Rory since uh, he played in our junior Ryder cup when he was uh, 15 and it's, it's deep. Cause I, I was there and, uh, yeah, I've kind of known him since then, and he's always very kind to me, you know, recognizing that. Um, generally, no, though, it's, uh, you know, that's their office out there. And so, you you know, your job is just to be there if they need you, but there's not a lot of chatting going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In general, do you think tour players know the rules as well as people think they do? Well, I don't think they know them well at all. Um, <laughs> so can you say I that? Think, <laughs> I think part of that is by plan. You know, I think some definitely do. And again, something that the European tour, now DP tour, especially back under my two uh, dear friend, John Paramore, Andy McPhee, who used to be the chief referees. And they made a very conscious attempt to get the players to do, especially basic rules, take relief from a sprinkler head, mm-hmm. things that aren't really that hard to get them to do their own. Um, I think that what the players do know is that if they get uh, they get direction from a re- referee and it ends up being incorrect, they're not on the hook for that. So, okay. so, so you know, I think a lot of times, you know, ball gets in a funny place and the player will just, hey, get the referee over here. I don't want to try to do it and get it wrong yeah. because if I end up playing from a wrong place, then I'm, I'm going to be penalized. So I think a little bit of the lack of knowledge is, is to, you know, basically so they can be secure that they don't they don't get penalized by making mistakes yeah it's too bad sort of at some of the events i've attended i've I've always been surprised to see players where a ball will land in an area that i would be happy to hit from but they'll call a referee over and say you know can i get a a free lift they seem to be a little bit spoiled in that regard is that they like perfect lies so if it gets a little off the beaten path and and you know they'll what the heck let's call somebody over and see if we could get something but yeah i agree it's uh not happening if they're hit in the middle of the fairway, that's for sure. What's the most controversial ruling you've been involved in? Nothing controversial. I had a funny deal back at Valhalla the year that Rory won basically in the dark. And I was up, I had Ricky Fowler and Phil Mickelson. And we were in the group ahead of them, the last group, because in the PGA Championship, we have a walking referee with the last five groups on Saturday and Sunday. So I was in the group ahead, and, and in order to expedite trying to finish by dark or before 
before it really it was dark already. We had a we kind of played up onto they played up into our group twice, and it just got a little the communication got a little funny. So Phil got a little hot, but uh, that was it, and a lot got made of it because you know it's it was unusual. You know, one group pulling over to the side to let the other group play so that they could walk, and we're just trying to get done, which we did. Rory, you know, was a great champion, so it certainly worked out. But it was a little funny. Next day I got home, I got a call from the president of the PGA of America saying, we really have to talk about this thing. And I said, well, there really wasn't a thing. We were, you know, we were just trying to get done. And the the guy behind me was the chairman of our committee at the time. So when he yeah. tells me what to do in my ear piece, I'm going to do it. Uh, so yeah. it just got a little unusual. Have you had an occasion where a player has given you some grief over a ruling? And you've had a kind of go toe to toe anytime the toughest ones anytime they're like you said i think you said it perfectly when you think the player's in a good liar and the player looks at you and is looking for something anytime you get into a a judgment situation should the player get relief from something and you have one thought on it and they have a different thought on it so those subjective calls you know but fortunately if we've all done our homework and we know our golf course and we know what the conditions are um, if, you know, for instance, if, if you think about like Augusta just last week, after all the rain, there are plenty of areas where the patrons were walking that were just, they were just, you know, dirt and, and, and mud. And, but by rule, if you don't have any visible water, any visible temporary water, just because it's grass that's turned into mud, it's no relief. And so when you get into that situation, you're going to have some various opinions uh and the thing that you always remember there is you you know you, you don't try to you, you even though you know you're right you don't take that attitude you always you know call another official come in hey you know you give this guy your opinion and and you know usually they know that what the first opinion was so yeah. uh, you know, you get your support in that case but uh you know can't blame them for asking what, what event was it with dustin johnson where he took a practice stroke in a he lost the tournament as a result. Were you, yeah, in that, were you in that whistling straights? The year is going to escape me. But yeah, and that was another situation. If there's fifteen, roughly fifteen hundred bunkers at whistling straights, mm-hmm. and there are as many of them that are outside the ropes lines that are inside the rope lines, and, and we had posted uh, reminders everywhere that you could see. Remember, any of these things that are sand are, are bunkers, even though a lot of people. And, and so he hit this ball in eighteen that got outside the ropes. And it was actually our chairman of our committee was walking with him that day. And the thing that went kind of unfortunately sideways was Dustin asked this, you know, our chairman to go and move a certain group of people. And if I know for a fact that if our chairman was still walking with them and got to where the ball was, he would have reminded Dustin that he was in a bunker. But Dustin wow. quickly made a couple practice swings and hit the sand. And, you know, that was it. So, yeah, he couldn't have been. I don't want to say he's nice. He was nice about it, but he couldn't have been more. He understood. He didn't like it, but he understood it. Yeah. If a rules official makes some kind of a incorrect call, did they get booted or reprimanded or, <laughs> you know, what's, what are the consequences? You don't want to make a lot of them. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. I think if, you know, if, for us, if you've got to, you know, most of our guys are all real good, but if, if you get, you know, get that rep or get that rep that, you know, you're getting as sharp as you should be, you're probably not going to get the best events to work. <laughs> Just say it that yeah. way. Yeah. I'm sure the tour might have a little different, you know, protocol for it. But uh, the good news is that on that 
highest of levels, there's not, there, I don't really feel there's a lot of mistakes being made. Yeah. Do you have a point of view on viewers calling in when they see rules violations on television? Do you think that's yeah, well, fair? For, yeah. Fortunately, that's mostly gone away um, where we, you know, especially at the majors now, um, we all have people in, uh, you know, a designated rules official watching the broadcasts. The hard thing is, as there become more and more of these feeds, internet feeds, you know, a different, different, you know, Sky Network and NBC and all, you know, different feeds going on that you're trying to watch a lot of golf at the same time. Um, so we try to get ahead of it. That first of all, that if something funny happens, you know, you, you you're right there and then get the replay and see if you do see anything. But certainly, I I, I don't like the concept of, of it at all because you know it's it's just not fair to that player who's just singled out for an instance and somebody on the couch happens to, uh, you know, wind it up and, and bring it down into ultra slow motion and prove, you know, that the ball did move or whatever the situation yeah. might be. And so now, now actually in the rules, there's something called the naked eye standard that if even if video evidence it shows that let's say the player caused the ball to move, uh, if the player couldn't have realized or known that because it was so, impossible so you know it moved a you know millimeter yeah um, uh, that we you know that pet player wouldn't be penalized yeah can't what, see what it with think, the naked eye what do you think the most confusing rule or rules are not just for pga pros but for the average golfer most often you know yeah it's funny when you're at the club and you're talking about things and, and you know while well, we were here and we know that this the, the, the rule works this way and you're like no, nah, it really doesn't. Um, I think in general, uh, the, just the let's take the concept of penalty areas, as we now call them, and you have two possibilities. They could be marked with yellow or they could be marked with red. And so the idea that the relief is only one, there's only one difference, which means in the red penalty relief, you get this option to come out sideways laterally which you don't have if you have a yellow penalty area. I got to say by set, it's, it's not really all that easy to understand, you know, if you're just starting out, but I think conceptually it's not that hard once you get it. Uh, but I, that's probably number one. Well, why is this one? What does red mean versus yellow? And, and there's really not much difference, but the subtle difference is hard for a lot of people to digest. Yeah. I've been involved in some club tournaments where a fellow member will get back in the clubhouse and claim that a, you know, fellow competitor did something wrong. <laughs> Different point of view on that. I mean, I, I guess if it's a club championship, maybe it's something, but. <laughs> you know, I, if you're not there to see it, it's hard to, you know, that's always the hardest, the hardest part of the job is when that phone rings and something I get, you know, I, you know, I'm, all my friends and other clubs and, and all the time that, you know, something happens at their, at their club, at their club at an event or whatever. And, and you get that phone call and he said, well, the player said that this happened and this said, he says that this happened. And I said, well, you know, it's really hard to, it's really hard unless there's a, a real obvious gaffe to yeah. say, Hey, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So by our rule of thumb is if it's one versus one, then you've got to the game is based on integrity. Okay. That you would side with the player. If it's two against one, now we now we might start looking at this a little differently. Okay, is there is there, you don't have to name any names, but are there some <laughs> pros on the tour who are notorious for always asking for relief or are, are kind of you know the referees kind of at the bar afterwards <laughs> either expect or talk about 
particular person or persons who have a reputation for that? I think if you're, you know, for us, for instance, at PJ Championship, if we're not a familiar face to the touring, to the tour players. So they're used to seeing their rule staff out there. And I think if they feel like they got a new guy, they might test him. You know, okay. it might go ahead and ask. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some out there that tend to, you know, kind of question things more, you know, feel like feel like their lies bad or whatever. But I can't not not necessarily off the top of my head now. Okay. What I mean, you you have a you have an insider's view of what it's like, yeah, as a observer to be a PGA Tour pro. I mean, it can't be an easy life. I mean, everybody thinks it's so glamorous, but they're living out of a suitcase, right? And it's pressure all the time. I mean, do you do you have a point of view on? Well, I think the guys, you know, the guys, the guys in the top fifty are. It's a nice life, you know. I think I think those, you know, those are the guys who, are, are, you know, you know, have the best have the best deals in terms of sponsorships and fly private and you know that, that I think that fly private deal is a big deal. Once you once you reach that element where you know you're you're not slogging you know slugging all your stuff commercial. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I look at those guys and I think, man, I to have to chant you know to basically play a weekend if you you make a cut, you technically didn't make any money. You move on to the next spot, you repack, you re you know, unload again. Now you got to get out there and perform, you know, then you got to go out and find your game and practice. It's hard. That's why, you you know, I give them a lot of credit and you really got to, that's why there's so many folks out, the guys out and girls out there who have all the chat, all the skill in the world. But when it comes down to that, I think real toughness to be able to, to live this life and perform well, you know, I think there's a lot of great golf swings out there that, you know, that just don't ever get to that place because yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I look at the LPGA tour, especially that does so much more flying back and forth to Asia yeah, and, and just say, man, they're, you know, and they try to do it so that they're over there for a couple weeks on at, at a time. But, you know, these, these folks travel the world to, to play golf and, and, you know, I, I, I can imagine, you know, fly, I can't fly East coast to West coast and think that I could even get up and swing a club the next day, six, yeah. seven hours on a plane. What's the most fun part for you about being inside the ropes? Coming from the teaching side, I just love watching them play. And, they're, you know, watching the shots they can hit and the things they can do at the highest level. You know, the, the skill level of these players is amazing. And so I'm, I'm just, I just enjoy watching them play. That's what's neat about having a, a closer seat than everybody else. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the new rules for 2023? I mean, what what should the average player be aware of or... At least really, not, no, not too many changes. A, a couple of little subtle things, um, you know, that again, it's, there's some technicalities that I think most players wouldn't even have really known how they worked the first time that they've cleaned up a little bit um, in, in terms of when you're one of the relief options for unplayable ball or ball penalty area where you're actually dropping back as far as you want to go on a line. They've, they've kind of changed the relief area to be a full circle. And, and I, I would say, Nobody knows that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing, like I think, I think the good move is to consider they're consistently uh, looking at the penalties and saying, why do we penalize, you know, for for bad play? Uh, for example, once upon a time, years ago, if you hit yourself or your equipment with your own ball, now think about that. What mm-hmm. kind of shot did you just hit? You you were it was a two stroke penalty. So now the shot counting it. And then they said, well, 
the next step was, yeah, that's, that's really kind of piling on. So they've made it one stroke. And then they finally said, well, this is a really bad shot. Let's just let them play it. So no strokes. <laughs> um, and, and so one, one this year that I think again is, is the right direction. So, so you get up on the ball, you know, if you're playing by the, by the rules and you got up on the putting green and you mistakenly put down the wrong ball, you substituted a ball that used to be two. And now that is reduced to one. I think that's a, you know, I can't see how I gain a two ball penalty just by changing my golf ball. And, okay. and I hope that that eventually even goes away. Are there any other rules that you've always considered to be dumb or unfair? The one that I wish could change, but I understand why it doesn't would be just practice swings, touching the ground in a bunker, you know, if you okay. get in a bunker, make, but if you think about the big picture, if you got into a bunker and you made a bunch of practice swings and everybody else did too, you know, imagine the the result from a maintenance perspective. All this sand up on the green, and yeah. and, and uh, so I get it. I said I, I don't think anybody really gains a lot of. Now, if you're a bad bunker player, um, you, you can make ten swings in there, and I don't think you're going to be any better when you actually try to hit the ball. So, right. Right. Uh, but but I understand also why it, why it can't change. Yeah. What's the most exciting thing you've <clears throat> you've witnessed personally on the tour? The moments or or. Well, I mean, for example, were you there in, when Tiger won at the Masters in 2019? I was, yeah, yeah. That's, I'm glad you brought that up because that was pretty cool. I was on the 15th hole that day, so I got to see two things happen. I saw Molinari basically, you know, chunk it into the water, which, you know, and he was in the lead or near the lead at that point. And then I saw when Tiger came down, he just had this look about him, like, you know, that was the first I said, I didn't seen that look before. I said, this, this guy's going to win this thing. Yeah. He just had that. Uh, the other thing that even though I didn't witness it personally was my first, uh, my first visit to Augusta was the famous uh, chip in on 16 where the ball hung on the hole. Right. And mm-hmm. so we, I was already done for the day and in the tournament office with the other officials were done and, and you could feel the place shake you know, that it was so yeah. loud. And so that yeah. was pretty neat to be property for that to happen. Yeah. That was cool. The better than most chip, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you have an opinion on the live tour? My opinion would be, I just, if you, if they wanted to, a player wanted to go there and honestly take the money, good for you. You, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a business. I don't think necessarily there should be an avenue to come back in once you do, but that's for the tours to decide. But I, I think there's a lot really that goes back to the days of when Greg Norman wanted to do this type of thing 20 years, 20 plus years ago. And, you know, I think there's still some sour grapes and, you know, it, it, the idea of, I, can you name the one thing we chuckle about? Can you name a single team on the live tour? No, no, I, I'm not, I, the format bores me. And I, and I, I, I never will. Um, it's just that team element is not interesting to me. I don't think yeah. it, I don't think it really pertains to golf. You know, again, is it, those guys want to do it for the money, you, you go ahead. And, and I think on the, in terms of that, as we saw in Augusta, I think the one thing about what we saw there was you saw Brooks and particularly Phil and Patrick Reed played very well, but they play well at Augusta. So I, I think the yeah. idea there that, you know, that, the live players are every bit as competitive. I, I don't think they're going to be as competitive for that long with the 54 home format and how they play. So, um, you know, it's just, like anything, 
a little revolution from time to time probably isn't a bad thing, but well, it jacked up the purses for it sure the PGA did. Player, right? Sure did. <clears throat> if you had a bet either way, would you uh, would you bet that live will live or die eventually? <laughs> I know the pockets are as deep as there are anywhere, anywhere, but I still don't know how long even the Saudi business, you know, will lose money. At yeah. some point, there's got to be, you know, some look at it and say, well, what is this really gaining for us? All we do is pour money into it. And, um, you know, when you look at the tour, it's it's kind of the opposite. You see the, the you know, billion dollars a year in charity that the tour generates yeah. and, and, and the profits for their sponsors. Uh, but that just doesn't seem to exist on, on the other tour. So I don't know how long that's sustainable. Who officiates at, at the live events? They, they actually, interesting enough, um, once it was format, formulated, um, the first fellow that they recruited was a gentleman named Slugger White, who, who was the co-chief referee with Mark Russell on the PGA Tour for many, many years. So as far as I know, Slugger runs the rule side. There's another fellow that I'm really good friends with. He was a USGA, more so, and he's over there. And uh, from what I hear, they're, they're paid pretty nicely, <laughs> as everybody else is, but I haven't heard of really any rules instances at all on the on any of the not that I pay much attention. Yeah. Would you ever work those events? Live events? Yeah. Uh, no. I say that now. I mean it's just, <laughs> how big how big's the bag of money? <laughs> we'll give you ten million dollars, Brian. Yeah, so, yeah. so you mentioned Patrick Reed. He has kind of has a reputation as a rules bender. Is he scrutinized more carefully as a result of that baggage? I think historically, you know, there's been fellows who kind of once you get that rep. I think people look at you a little, you know, they, they study you a little bit more. They think, yeah, that's why so much of this, so many of these guys and girls, you know, they don't want to no appearance of evil whatsoever. And so once you get on that side, I think that's a, that's a hard thing to shake off. So yeah. nobody wants that rep. Yeah. It yeah. is, again, it's a game of integrity. Yeah, that's right. Let me ask you a few more questions and let me go back to the personal side. You've won a lot of recognitions and awards in your profession. Is there one that you consider to be more important to you or most important to you and, and why? Got, just got in. I didn't have that on what I gave you. I got, you know, I got into the PGA Hall of Fame this fall. I should have mentioned that. I knew that. I had it written down. Sorry. So that's, um, that was pretty good. Uh, You're the 40, only the 42nd person, right? 40, 40, 42, 43. Uh, uh, and, and what's nice about that is uh, that our Hall of Fame, all Hall of Fames can be whatever the local section wants to be. Ours has always been very, very much player oriented. So mm -hmm. I'm one of the few in there that don't have, you know, a, a deep history of wins playing wise. Um, it's all service, which is a nice compliment. Um, and, and to that being said, the National Horton Smith Award, you know, that's, that's an award given for helping fellow PGA uh, professionals in education. And okay. so be recognized for helping other PGA professionals. Yeah, that's really nice, too. So was Horton Smith the same individual who started the caddy program? What is it? The Midwest Golf? No, I think that you're talking about the Evans Scholars. Evans Scholar, Yeah. OK. Horton Smith was um, he was the first winner of the first Masters 1934. Oh, OK. PGA. But he really uh, he dedicated this. This is, again, back in the day. You know where golf professionals were were still not you know really viewed at as quote unquote very professional jobs, yeah. uh, and he did a lot to elevate the profession by uh, by making sure the membership 
uh, were were properly trained and acted properly. So, you know, that was, and he was a brilliant player. Yeah. Uh, just got overshadowed by, you know, the time by, by the uh, Bobby upcoming Jones. Bobby Jones. And then yeah. when, you know, Hogan and Sneed and Nelson rolled around. So, yeah. And uh, during that era, correct me if I'm wrong, amateur golfers were more respected than professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The amateur side was always, you know, the, read a great book with old Tom Morris and as much as he was revered, you know, the, the man was never allowed to set foot in the, in the clubhouse. So no, the professional side eventually overtook, you know, the amateur side. A lot of that I think had to do with guys like Hogan and Sneed and then, and then Arnold Palmer, yeah. you know, and then when TV came around and that's, you know, and the jobs had changed so that the tour eventually <laughs> these guys could make a living. Cause again, back in those days when even uh, Hogan started out, you know, he'd play the tour, but then go back. He was the head pro at Hershey country club. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. So, so once the tour became a, a way to make a living, it eventually overtook amateur golf. I had occasion about 10 years ago to, to play at Bay Hill and I went downstairs in the locker room and it's not a really elaborate locker room. It's not very large. And I look over and this guy's playing cards and one of the guys is Arnold Palmer and he's playing cards with his buddies and he's, he would have play a scramble, I don't know, once or twice a week and post his score like everybody else. I mean, he's so unbelievable guy. Yeah, he was. So let me ask a couple more questions. You know, you have a, you have a reputation as, as, uh, as being easygoing and, uh, and, and good natured. I mean, where did that temperament come from? Yeah, Could have been your no, Catholic school training. No, I have no idea. I, I, I got no idea. I just probably my brother, my half brother, unfortunately, just passed away in December. Oh, uh, sorry. But he was uh, he was the most mellow guy I ever met. And he was older than me, so uh, I spent a lot of time. Like, he, co- he was a coach in a lot of my sports and whatever. But the guy was he was just inflappable. And uh, never saw him mad in his life. And I'm like, eh, that's not a bad way to go rather than, than have. So I, I don't know. I, I guess, too, in golf early on, I had a couple walking bags that I lose my temper a little bit and, and slam my golf club to the bottom of the bag and break the bag. And then now I'm, I'm walking around with wet grips all day. And I, kind of, I just kind of learned that you know, <laughs> the, the temper thing's over. I, I don't need yeah. it. Well, talking about your brother, I mean, is there a person – or a book or a poem or, or some kind of a quote that has served as a source of personal inspiration for you in your life? No, not, I, I, no I just, no, I don't know that I'm wired that way. I admire the the Palmers and the and the guy, you know, the people that are just go Jack Nicholas, you know, just Byron Nelson, the people that just can, can go through life with a lot of grace and, 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 you know, just seem like they treat people the right way. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a lot of inspiration. We don't, don't see that much in, in, in our current culture, do we? <laughs> no, no comment on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you have uh, any advice for a young person who's thinking about a career as a club or teaching professional? You know, it looks, I think especially, I've, I've had a lot of experience with that. With We have uh, in PGA of America, the PGA, PGA, PGM, Professional Golf Management Program at roughly 18 universities. And so I've, a number of local kids through the years wanted to go through and went through them. Um, it just would be to say, like, look at this business as it really is. You know, it's a service business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you got to be cut out of that cloth where, you know, realize that, you know, weekends are, that's just, that's when people play. So don't, don't, you're not getting weekends off. You're going to work long days. Everybody thinks you play a lot. You know, some do if you're in the right scenario, but but really give the business a thorough look. And, and I always said to some of these younger guys, like, look, go just work at a club for a summer. 
and watch, see what happens, see what the real thing is. Now, if you come away from that and say, gee, I just like it, like the environment, which many, you know, many do, go ahead. But other than that, you know, the biggest problem is it's not, you know, you take the same kid who comes out and gets a business degree, which is what the PGM management is, but then gets into private sector business and the salary is, you know, much different. So I think you got to give it a, a good look. It's a, if, if it's for you, it's great, you know, great for me but everybody's different. It looks cool. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's kind of a retail business. meaning that you got to deal with a lot of personalities, air quotes, and some of those personalities are not pleasant and um, you got to have, you got to have thick skin, you know? And I'm well, you know, I'm lucky to have done, you know, my career up in the Northeast where I get a solid chunk of time, you know, four months or so a year where I'm, I'm able to go South uh, but you look at the you look at anyone in a climate where it's it's year round. It, it, it's it's truly that it's a you know fifty two uh, day a year job, which often for the people in the south includes Christmas and yeah. every you know so yeah, yeah it's a it, you just said it it's a service industry. Yeah, two more questions. One is you you told me about your wife, which I didn't know. <laughs> um, to have two rules officials in the same yeah. family, it's a wife, wife in technical terms. Truly, I got to say we're not technically married, but. It has been thirty. It has been thirty plus years. So. Well, is anybody really technically married? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so can you share any other personal insights? Um, what What do you do when you're not serving the members of Black Oak Golf Club? Yeah, we just this year we discovered pickleball. You got did a little, got a little pickleball this winter. Okay. Yeah, I like to have a little more time for that. So that that's been kind of fun. But you know, we'll play. You know, we we'll do same thing. It's uh, just like anybody else. If if we both get the same day off for the week, we'll we'll go. We, you know, we play during the winter. You know, not a ton. I mean, yeah. neither of us have that drive to like. Our, our, I see my fellow golf pros who are retired in Florida. You know, playing five six days a week. Yeah. I, I, I don't need that. Once or <laughs> twice is just fine. Yeah. You know, so so yeah, you know, we're we're both pretty capable of kicking back. That's for sure. Okay. So my last question is, what have I not asked you that you want to talk about or that you thought I would ask you and surprised I didn't? I didn't uh... No, I think it's pretty thorough. It's, it's been fun. It's, uh, I got No, I, I've got nothing else to say. I, I think, uh, I think you got it all out. Found it, even found out about your feral cats. Oh yeah. My, my, it's, yep. It's you're watching? Yeah. He's asleep. That's all okay. they do. Okay. It's, it's really a true statement. They sleep for 23 hours a day and then, then uh, you terrorize you for an hour. But yeah. Well, thanks, yeah. Brian. It's been great. My I really pleasure. appreciate your time. Let's try another one of those lessons and see if we get on the other side of 16 this time. <laughs> it's not going to help, but, but I am going to take you up on that. <laughs> so thanks again. I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.